You've read or heard or preached the scripture this week. Now what? Join me, Pastor Carissa, and my colleague, Pastor Alan, as we explore the spaces between the Sundays in our podcast, Soft Idolatry. Welcome to Soft Idolatry, Season 6, Episode 11. Carissa, how's it going today? Alan and I we checked in a little bit before the before we started recording today, but I've had a really pretty weird day. It's just one of those strange strange days in chaplaincy. How are you? Uh, I'm okay. I'm I'm fighting a head cold, and as long as it stays in my head and goes away soon, I will be very very happy. Yeah, tis the season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it- this year the panic over is this a cold or allergies or COVID. Right. And and even if you say anything to anyone, they're like, oh, did you get tested? Did you get that checked out? It's like, no, it, I know what a head cold feels like. This feels like a head cold. I, I think if I had a breakthrough COVID infection, I'd feel way worse than I do. Or you wouldn't feel anything at all, but I'm not a doctor, so I well, don't know. I, yes. You know, I would feel nothing at all or I'd be dead <laughs> or okay, on well, death's door. <laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> well, duh. That would that would make my day shift from weird to terrible. So, mm. yeah. No, I believe you. It's just a head cold. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going around now that people are together again. Mm-hmm. After two years of not being together again, we started the school year. My kids both immediately got colds. Um, yeah, that's just part of being human and being exactly. in community. Exactly. Yeah. And and so as long as nothing happens that makes me lose my voice or keeps me from going on retreat next week, I will be a very happy camper. Excellent. And as long as I uh, keep the sound on on my computer, we'll be able to hear you. I'll know that you have a <laughs> voice. I've not been technically savvy today. Um, so we've had guests for the past few weeks and we have a guest again today. We do. We have uh, one of my colleagues here in Jersey. The Reverend Jessica Dixon, who is uh, currently serving at a church very near me. Uh, Jess, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Hi. Yeah. Um, I'm currently serving as the interim pastor at Old Tenet Presbyterian Church, um, which is one of three in the vicinity with Alan, or that I think of as my two neighbors. Been here about a month. Uh, I do professional interim or transition ministry, which uh, I describe to people outside the church as I am a pastoral palate cleanser. Um, <laughs> I serve the gelato. Yeah, I serve congregations between long-term pastors or during a period when um, there needs to be a reevaluation or tweaking of the ministry before a new pastor can come in and serve longer term uh, effectively. So I do a lot of adaptive change and evaluation processes and retraining of the leadership, the lay leadership of congregations. In my work, um, just started here beginning of September, and it's been fascinating. I've lived in New Jersey. I did one other transitional position before this, a little farther south in Lacey Township. And um before that, served churches in Oklahoma and Chicago, where I was ordained, and also where I went to seminary. But there was a gap in between there uh, of five years after seminary, where um, I did youth ministry and mission uh, directing with congregations while searching for a call. If you'd asked me the day I graduated seminary what I wanted to do, I would have said congregational ministry in sort of the traditional sense. 
And it took five years of doing other things and not getting a call before I realized I was called to do this transition thing and, and took a class on that. And it changed that whole trajectory for me and has been um, a great thing. I'm also serving in the brand new Presbytery of the Coastlands as the uh, moderator of the Committee on Ministry. So I spend a lot of time that I'm not paid for serving uh, the congregations of the Presbytery when there is a need for conversation about a change in pastoral leadership or a crisis in a congregation, helping connect churches with mediators and other things. So um, that work takes a significant amount of my time as well and certainly feels like a part of my call right now, even if it's not a paid job. <laughs> so so that, that raises a couple of questions uh, for me. First, t- tell, our, tell our listeners, how old is Old Tenet? Oh, the sanctuary I preach in was built in 1751. The church was founded in 1691, I want to say. I don't know the early date. Yeah, um, it's some, 1691 or 92. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's the building that I preach in, the pulpit I preach in, both Jonathan Edwards and uh, Witherspoon preached in at various points, not as the pastor of the church, but um, preached here and the sanctuary building I preach in was part of the field hospital for Washington's army during the Battle of Monmouth uh, during the Revolutionary War. So it's a historic place for sure. Yes, th- there are still bloodstains on the pews uh, mm-hmm. th- that never washed out from that battle. Uh, and a glass it- front cabinet in the sanctuary that has cannonballs in it, which is a whole weird thing for me. As a <laughs> <laughs> hmm. uh, so so uh, that... that uh, that fun bit of trivia aside, you know, uh, I've, I've also served some interim pastorates. And uh, I, I wonder, you know, the, the idea uh, is very common in the Presbyterian Church of, you know, needing to grieve the loss of a long-term pastor and uh, do some adaptive change and all of that. But I wonder, and, and perhaps you see this from your transitional work, you know, is that idea of having a long-term pastor, um, does that fit our current church reality? No, not in the way most church congregation members would think of it. I don't think that's a thing that really exists anymore. I think we are seeing as as I follow, well, the current position, the pastor who was only here for seven years before me, but my the last one I served was there for 20. Um, and I think we're seeing an end to that. The, the average pastor, I believe, is only five years now. Um, and so I have on committee on ministry and in my work as an interim had to be very clear with congregations about what a right-sized expectation is for how long a pastor might serve them for a variety of reasons and to help churches understand that it's not, it's not necessarily that they are a bad church or a whatever the assumption might, or that that pastor is lazy or like whatever other assumption they might make about why someone would leave on that timeline. Um, But it is sort of the norm now. Things are shorter. And I think a lot of churches need to, um, work through things like the fact that they're getting smaller and 
don't have the financial resources and a variety of other things. And an interim can only, or transitional pastor can only do so much to get them to do that work. And sometimes it takes us the past, the next pastor being there and, and often, unfortunately, unintentionally having to have that conversation um, or ha- helping them realize what it means to be who they are and not who they wish they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's, you know, that's a thing I'm seeing with churches I'm working on committee on ministry with and, and other pastors I have spent time with in different contexts throughout the, the years I've been. I mean, and I've been I've done presbytery work since I was 18. I was ordained as an elder at 17 and have served on presbytery committees pretty much my entire adult life. So um, I'm very aware of <laughs> all of how people, elders and pastors talk about these things at that level as well. And um, yeah, it's things are different than we wish they were. And, and we got to figure out how to move past wishing they were to doing effective ministry with what is. And I think my hope is that a lot of things are lining up, that we will be able to do that, but that may be, you know, a hope unseen. We will see. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and that, that almost seems like a perfect segue into our questions. That's exactly what I was about to say, Alan. Um, I mean, that's, that's precisely why we're doing this series right now on blowing up the church. Um, because, you know, my, my history is I was in small dying congregations for uh, a number of years and um, also serve on our, our COM here in Pittsburgh. I'm so sorry. My dog is trying to get into the room with me right now. Um, and have seen that same kind of thing where it's really hard to admit that things are changing dramatically. And it's a cultural change, right? It's not a change in the quality of the pastors that are that are around. It's just a, a cultural shift that the church needs to get on board with. And I know Alan has done interim ministry and has experienced those kind of things as well. So... Um, you know, and in this time of COVID, it's interesting to stop and think about as we restart things, how do we not return back to old normal, but return to a new and better normal in the church? So yeah, that's exactly why we're doing this series right now. So Jess, if you could start all over, start it from scratch, how would you reconstitute the church? So I've been thinking about this question since you presented that it's sort of the core of what you're talking about right now. And I have a number of different thoughts and it's interesting the ways that they sort of match the varieties of ways I feel called and have been paying attention to what I might do next, you know, as an interim, because my positions are shorter, I'm always thinking about what is the next thing and do I stay in sort of transitional ministry? Do I do something else? Um, And so I think it's sort of, Two things. What happens to the churches that are if we blew up the church? Because I think, you know, blowing it up doesn't necessarily mean that those communities stop existing. (laughs) It just maybe means that what the, you know, the conversations we're asking churches to have would might be very different. Um, I also think that, you know, there's the other answer for me, which is what would what would I as a way to think about it in a concrete way? What would I do if congregational ministry were no longer a thing (laughs) with my call. Um, And that one I actually have a bit of an answer for because I proposed back in those five years where I was having a hard time finding an ordained role in the church. I spent a lot of time thinking about what does it mean if I don't ever reach that point? 
<clears throat> and one of the things I did was write a proposal to create what an RPCUSA is called the Thousand and One Communities, a new worshiping thing, <laughs> whatever that might look like in the in the broader description of that. But for me, the the core things that the church has done throughout history and continues to do well, and that it's pretty indisputable, follow the call of Christ is to serve people who are in need and to create community among people of a wide variety of descriptors. I say often in non-church contexts that one of the few things the church and possibly religion in general offers to the world that is missing these days is intergenerational contexts in which people outside of a family unit are invited to be in community across that particular set of boundaries. Um, and I think the church could have the opportunity to be that across others, you know, racial boundaries, socioeconomic ones, whatever it is, um, identity boundaries of a wide variety of sorts. And I think the church tries to do those things as it stands, but a lot of times our history and our polity, practice, whatever, get in the way because we live in social norms in the church that are from 50, 100, 200, 2000 years ago, and <laughs> they constrain us. And in a lot of ways, they're intended to, but we have to evaluate if those constraints are actually the ones that serve community anymore or not. Um, and <clears throat> that evaluation, I think, is part of what would need to happen is what are the what are the necessities and and how do we gather community well? And you have to put constraints on things because if everybody just was allowed to do whatever they wanted, that wouldn't be community because you wouldn't be communicating or really together. And so it's not that that's bad, but what does it look like to have ones that serve what we need to be for each other now as opposed to um, the boundaries we live with that existed for a different generation and a different time in history. Um, and so the thing I pro proposed and didn't end up doing, but still have sort of on the back burner in my head is basically a place that would gather in one part around food. I would love to start a cafe that funded the project, but that basically would be a community center space. Um, and part of the vision of that is providing space for groups like AA and NA and mother parents groups and whatever else that used to meet in churches and often still do. We have an AA or an NA group every night of the week in the building that I serve in. But a lot of those groups are less and less comfortable in church spaces. And so creating that community space that would be free or inexpensive to those groups already doing the work. I think it's part of what is part of the struggle of the church right now is how do we support, keep to our own ideals and ethics and mores, but support where the good work we are called to do is already being done in the world without letting those two things, the, the way that we behave and are called by the gospel and perhaps the ways that that might be different from those other organizations, keep us from working together. And so to provide that space. And, and also without trying to colonize the right. other. Mm -hmm. yeah. Allowing yeah. those. Because often what's good about those things, you, you would change too profoundly, trying to make them conform to your own things. And there's, you know, a great deal of ego and um, assumption, uh, privilege in asking the other group to conform to your own way of being. Um, and you harm what it is that is good in doing so. And so how do you leave that space?
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, open. How do we how do we make relationship authentic, true to who all the parties are without demanding that we change each other? Um, I think is part of that question for me. It is interesting because the church is oddly territorial, and you know nonprofits can be like this um, to begin with. I was in nonprofit world before. Um, going into parish ministry and then jumping back into the nonprofit world. But um, it is an oddly territorial thing where if the church wants to do a particular type of ministry, like they want to do food outreach, well, the answer is clearly to start your own food pantry. And then there's all these little churches with six cans of peas and um, food banks that are doing really great, important work that need financial donations and volunteer support and things like that. And we don't want to partner with those things. And I, I wonder if that's part of the church's problem with, um, you know, folks our age and younger not wanting to, to deal with it. Like we want to be doing the stuff and we want to be doing it well. We don't want to be half-assing it with six cans of peas on a shelf. And, um, for example, like I'm not talking from experience or anything, but, um, it's just hypothetical. And, um, maybe we need to take that rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep passage communally, as well as individually. Like if another organization is doing great work, let's celebrate that work and support it in real tangible financial and people power kind of ways. And, uh, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I really like about our clergy association here in the Freehold area is that 20, 25 years ago, they saw that duplication of efforts and said, you know, it would just make more sense if, you know, we've got 20 odd congregations here. If we all chipped in $2,000 and in the 1990s, pulling $2,000 out of a church budget was not an inconceivable task. Uh, and, and, you know, first they founded uh, a food pantry that serves the whole community. And then they founded uh, an emergency housing program, too. So we have <clears throat> housing and rent vouchers, things like that. <clears throat> And I I suppose it also means that when you get the random call from somebody on the street needing aid, you have a place that you can direct people in need. And uh, it, it, you always, when somebody approaches you, there's always, at least in the back of my mind, that wonder, that question, is this person just working me? Or is this a person with real and immediate needs? And, uh, you know, when you have a ministry like that, you can just say, oh, well, I'm going to direct this person to the open door. And if, if they are needing something other than food, I don't have to be the one supplying that. And, uh, you know, they, they, can, they can get a different level of service. And those ministries in our community have grown to the point where, you know, there are two or three paid staff at the food bank and a, and, and a full-time staff person for the emergency housing and advocacy program. And, you know, those are 
great examples of us reaching across not only denominational boundaries, but across religious boundaries. Well, and I think I've attended that group now twice. And Mm -hmm. I think the the thing that it makes me think of in this same conversation is, yes, there is a lot of boundary, like religious boundaries, not even just within the Christian portion of the people present in that room. There's a lot of folks whose churches I would not feel real comfortable (laughs) in, especially not naming that I'm a pastor, um, who are from, you know, different cultural and just religious tradition backgrounds. And that's great. And I think it's one of the stronger ones I've ever seen. Like in most communities I've been in, there is like a clergy Bible study and it's the mainline pastors who sort of agree about things getting together to do a weekly Bible study. And that's fine. It's great to have that connection. But then that's not everybody at the table. And the church I served in Oklahoma, there was a youth leaders group and myself and the one other female associate pastor in town attended together. We wouldn't go if either of us couldn't be there because the rest of the group was all the prototypical 1990s guy with a goatee talking about his wife being his helpmate at the thing. And the two of us were like, I don't fit here, but we are serving the children of this community and the school system and whatever else. And it was important to be there and do that ministry, but we were not really welcome. And so it's interesting to see how those groups work out. But I was thinking actually the last meeting, um, we that those of us perhaps maybe to say on the more progressive end walk into those rooms knowing that that's going to be the case Mm -hmm. and i think Mm -hmm. we all make peace with whatever we have to make peace with to be in those rooms together i was excited by the one here because it seems like our roman catholic and other more evangelical siblings have made peace with it in some way as well and so they continue to be at the table which is good and remarkable and probably because what we're doing together there is filling such an elemental call of the gospel that we can let that be not so big a deal that's not common (laughs) but also what would happen if instead of you know being the cis presenting white woman that i am i walked into that room completely covered in tattoos with a wife and like how, how far does that welcome go on the end of the spectrum I'm on? And I'm not, I don't have any idea, but it's a question I had in, in the room for myself was, you know, there are, <laughs> there are spaces in which progressive folks might be welcome, but there are still boundaries on that. And so how do we, what would that look like? And, you know, maybe it's happened in the past, but. Um, I'll, I'm happy to answer that question off the air. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um. And so I think that's part of the question for me of if we blew up the church, how would people who are marginalized, but also have the gifts and ability and the voice to lead find more space and not have to spend all of their energy making a place for themselves at the table? Um, is one of the main things that it's like, okay, if we can start out by setting standards that say it doesn't matter who you are beyond your call to the gospel and to do the work that Jesus did and told us what is our job. The rest of that stuff is unimportant. Um, what would that look like and how would it change things and who would then feel unwelcome? Cause we're human and it's going to happen. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. That's, um, 
I also have things to say off the air of that particular <laughs> topic. Um, it was part of my weird day today, right? Not my co-workers, yeah. if anyone's listening right now, it wasn't you guys, you know who it was. But um, yeah, like how do we allow people a place to not have to justify their right to take up theological space in the world? And um, like, ju- let's, there are things we're going to disagree on because we're human. And so let's agree on people matter and we should take care of them. Well, and I think the other question you sent about what are the idols mm-hmm. um, is one that I was thinking about. And I've had conversations recently even with people about who deserves assistance. Um, and it's not uncommon in the church. Well, we don't want to give gift cards because people might use them to or might sell them and then buy drugs or they might whatever. And I understand those concerns. But I've worked enough in the world of service to folks with addiction and mm-hmm. with all kinds of other things to know that, you know, most often that's self-medicating in a variety of ways. And how dare I judge what that means when we live in a country with the messed up medical system we have? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, would I rather someone found treatment in another way that was safer, perhaps, for their long term health? Is it mine to judge why they make that choice or what choice they make? I'm not sure where the gospel tells me that that's, I mean, yes, I, perhaps I am my brother's keeper, but that supposes that I'm in relationship with him. And if all I'm going to do is judge and then not give, I don't know how we justify that. And so, you know, I have a hard time in those moments with my church members or whoever I'm speaking with say like, okay, I don't, I don't know how that's our job. (laughs) Um, And you do have to set boundaries financially as an institution on how and who you give to. That's maybe a different question. But theologically speaking, I don't see how the love of Christ for the people of the world (laughs) says anything about whether I get to judge that or not. Um, And uh, it's one I've been thinking about, praying about a lot lately because, you know, I'm my last, the last community I served didn't have that question as often because they gave those resources out in a different manner. <laughs> and so having them back on the table in a new place was like, oh, okay. Uh, I have to, you know, you walk in and you need something. I'm going to do what I can to give it to you um, and not hassle you about <laughs> who's in your home or why you've ended up in poverty or whatever else. Um And I wonder if that is the idol of protection from relationship, right? Because it's super difficult. It's super difficult to be in relationship with someone who is going through difficult times like that. Right. And to, and it requires an admission of the brokenness of our systems um, because a lot of people are like, well, why don't they just go get, you know, go to rehab? Well, you know, rehab isn't covered by their insurance if they have insurance or if it's covered, it's covered for like two weeks, which is not enough time. Or sometimes rehab just doesn't take. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing too, when we get down to that idol is a uh, relationship is a two-way street. You have to be open to change yourself to be in relationship. And 
uh, whether people are consciously aware of it or not, that inviting somebody into that space means that they have to they have to reciprocate in some way. It does not necessarily have to be one for one, but you will have to change your routine if you invite a new person in for a relationship. You will have to revise the way you see things as you relate with someone who um, has a serious problem with addiction or relationship or whatever. But uh, so maybe on some unconscious level, somebody knows that, hey, if I want to engage with it, with this population, then uh, that's going to take a toll on me. And what they don't have the language to say is, oh, this is going to call me to change and I don't want to change. And it's true. It's true of most of the spaces in which we've had these debates, fights, whatever in the church, anti-racism, LGBT issues, whatever. The reality is what the person in the privileged part is being asked to do is allow that relationship with folks who are different than them in whatever capacity is going to change them. And that privilege is really comfortable and it's really intoxicating and it's, you know, it's a space that's really easy to stay in. And it's much easier to deny the humanity and the, you know, relational value of being in relationship with someone else. It's easier to do that than it is to to acknowledge that culture or gender or sexuality or whatever it is and acknowledging that someone has a different one than you is going to change you too. It's not going to change you and make you gay or <laughs> trans or black or Asian or whatever it is, but it is going to change how you perceive the world because that other person's experience will then be in relationship with you. And, and you know, that that's, I think, a root of all of these things. Um, and, and that that needs to be the call of the church. It is, it is the call of the church anyway. I mean, we, we gather around food, we gather in worship. It's why the pandemic was so hard. We couldn't gather. Um, and so, you know, we know that that's who we are and it is who we are called to be, but we have to be it in better ways, um, and in ways that are not exclusionary and, um, harmful to people, um, and, and unfortunately harmful to people on both sides of the barrier, but in ways we wouldn't acknowledge necessarily. You know, change, fear of change <laughs> keeps coming up. That's like a theme that is, uh, it's been threaded through each of these conversations in, in different ways um, and, and powerfully distinct ways. Um, but I mean, it's not comfortable. And we see that time and time in scripture too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, send us back to Egypt. At least we knew what it was like there. <laughs> like, you guys, like, that's, why would you want to do that? Um, and I think the other, the other thing I'm taking away from some of these conversations, and I apologize if I said this last week too, is that there's, um, there's a lot of comfort in company in the journey and knowing that um, it's not just 
a specific church or kind of church. It's not just a specific pastor or kind of pastor. It's not just a specific ministry or type of ministry, but we're all feeling these growing pains after having been forced into serious change and reevaluation of how we do community over the past couple of, it's almost a couple of years now. Um, that's really, really hard. And I think a lot of people are, are lashing out in fear or discomfort. Um, you know, it's like when you, you know, try to like give your dog a bath, right. And they're like, freaking out. Um, it's not cause they don't like you or they're a bad dog. It's because they don't, they're scared of the water. Right. <laughs> that was a weird analogy, but it, it kind of sticks. In our committee on ministry right now. So the, the presbyteries in New Jersey, the boundaries all changed in March in the middle of a pandemic. We have literally never met in person as a presbytery and we have been building a presbytery while being one. And so the, the phrase we keep using is, you know, we're building the road while we're walking it. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what's so terrifying about this for in the macro sense beyond just that issue. But it's part of what we're wrestling with, with that change and the pandemic's change and all of the cultural change happening in the world in these spaces is that very thing. I uh, am on the teaching team for interim and transition ministry at Montreat Conference Center in North Carolina. And it was my first year doing that, and the piece I ended up teaching is the book um, The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker, which lays out a different model for how to plan and organize. Yep, <laughs> there it is. Right there. I had it sitting right beside me. <laughs> um, and um, a big part of what she's talking about, especially in the first part of the book, is about that you know etiquette doesn't serve us anymore. Um, that for so long, there was a time where, I mean, I forget what the phrase is, that chapter is titled something about the the rules of old dead white people or so old rich white people. I can't remember exactly how she phrases it. But, um, and that, you know, all of those mores, and certainly the church has them, like in spades, like more than a lot of other institutions do that, you know, if you don't do it this way, you know, this is then it's not church. And um, teaching it for, for pastors who specifically who are going to be doing transition work in churches and saying, okay, how do we shake things up? And, sh and the fact that she gives you a model for how to do it, I think was the thing that really was appealing to us. And I think that's part of the bigger thing that I think could find an answer in shorter order than the whole massive change of the church is to have some models. And, you know, I think a lot of the ones that have sort of popped up and dissolved over time in the last decade or two have been not deep enough. They've worked for a context or for a time, but we haven't had enough time trying to take the question seriously to really come up with, okay, how do you model the kind of conversation we need to have? How do we walk alongside those people who haven't even thought about it yet? Um, you know, a lot of us have been thinking about it for a long time, but there are lots of people in the church who, whether obstinately or just out of ignorance, didn't know these questions existed, let alone that they should be considering them for their churches. And so how do we make space at the table for all of that experience while also not compromising who needs to be at the table and how that conversation needs to go? And I, I'm seeing glimmers, I think, hopefully, of ways to do that. But we don't know. 
um, how we're going to get there. And so we are walking the road while we build it. And how do we do that um, is part of, I think, what causes a lot of that fear and resistance um, in the conversation. Um, if you can't give me an answer about how we're going to do it, how do I know that where we're going to get is going to be any good? Um, and the answer is we can't. I mean, you know, my favorite answer in a lot of church contexts is it's a mystery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's the Trinity? Well, I can give you lots of pieces of information, but it's a mystery and it's supposed to be. <laughs> and, and now we're all thinking of that, that video. It's modalism, oh, Patrick. My <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, well I, I think, I, I think we might have uh, reached a, a concluding point for today. I think we have. And uh, Jessica, it's been such a delight to have you here today. Um, you're welcome back anytime you have something to say to a couple dozen people uh, who've been faithfully listening to us for a couple of years now. Um, we really enjoy having these conversations, which is why we do this. So um, yeah, really appreciate it. Alan, do you want to close us in a word of prayer today? Sure. Gracious God, we thank you for relationships and for journeys. We ask that you equip us with a spirit of boldness and hospitality and wonder as we go about this sacred work. We ask that you give us sight as we journey and that you give us a sense of purpose and of perseverance as we journey through places that we cannot see the other side, where we cannot see what the destination looks like. We ask that you strengthen us and guide us through the uh the challenges in front of us. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage for the facing of this hour. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thanks for joining us on Soft Idolatry. For show notes and more information, check out our website at softidolatry.com. To send us questions or comments, you can email us at info at softidolatry.com. And if you'd like to help support this podcast, please become a patron at www.patreon.com slash softidolatry. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.